0: plus
1: you are now listening to true murder the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them gacy bundy dahmer the night stalker btk Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history, True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupansky. Good evening. This episode of True Murder is brought to you by Casper the online American retailer saving you big money by revolutionizing the mattress industry, cutting out resellers and showrooms to deliver to you the latest in sleep technology at shockingly low prices. Visit www.casper.com promo code True Murder. Rest assured, Casper deli- delivers the best sleep you've only ever dreamed of. A Survivor's firsthand Account of Attempted Murder in St. Francisville, Louisiana. A former warden of Angola Prison shoots his wife five times with a pistol, then sits down to watch her die on her plantation home porch. The victim, author Anne Butler, survives to tell this true crime story, detailing the unraveling of her seven-year marriage and how it led to her near murder. Interspersed with simple black-and-white snapshots, this stranger-than-fiction story of murder, survival, and forgiveness offers keen insights into the mind of both victim and criminal. The book that we are featuring this evening is Weep for the Living with my special guest author, Ann Butler. Welcome to the program, and thank you for agreeing to this interview, Ann Butler.
2: My pleasure, Dan. Nice to talk to you.
1: Thank you very much. Now let's get right to, as you do so masterfully in your book, set, get, you set the mood and take us right into the Butler Greenwood Plantation in Louisiana. You talk about this being eight generations of family in this home. So tell us about the Butler Greenwood Plantation. Well,
2: this is in St. Francisville, Louisiana. and St. Francisville, is not French Louisiana or Cajun Louisiana or Creole Louisiana. It's English Louisiana. And the early settlers here came down uh, from the East Coast right after the Revolutionary War, and they brought with them very English traditions and culture. Uh, my family came in the 1770s and got Spanish land grants. And first they grew indigo as their cash crop, and then cotton and sugarcane, uh, this plantation has never been sold out of the family, um, and so it's a little unusual. Uh, we operated it as a tour house for 23 years and then finally have closed it, but we do bed and breakfast on the plantation. So it's a, it's a family home, um, a lot of history here, and it is typical of the plantation, the English plantation country. A lot of now, live oaks, formal gardens, beautiful historic home, uh, very beautiful furnishings. And so um, visitors really enjoy seeing something that has never been sold out of the family or owned by the state or anything like that. It's, it's a real, uh, real piece of living history here.
1: Absolutely. You talk about in the book too that, that you said in the mid 1800s, two thirds of known millionaires lived in this area before the devastation of the civil war
2: absolutely all along the mississippi river corridor from new orleans to natchez um, you did have most of the most of the country's millionaires living near huge sugar plantations uh, a lot of wealth and then after the civil war of course um, that that way of life was over uh, but some of the families like this one were still able to hold on to the land. The lifestyle would never be elegant, um, but it was still a wonderful life on these old places.
1: Now, you also talk about because of the Civil War, many of the men were killed, so it, it left an opportunity in a old boys kind of world for women to take over these plantations afterwards. Well, you know, during the
2: Civil done. War, and after the Civil War. The men were either dead or gone during the Civil War, and the ones who came home from the war were either so disabled or so demoralized that they uh, were not able to resume the roles that they had played. During the war, the women, some very strong women, stepped up and ran the plantations, and they had to continue uh, to do that after the Civil War. So you had some very strong women all across the South, and particularly in this house, It was usually the women who not only were the strong ones, but outlived the men by many years, and um, so it it was a real matriarchy here.
1: Now, tell us about your writing career and the kinds of books that you have written and had written up to this date.
2: Well, of course, as a mother, I wrote children's books when my children were small, and then I wrote travel books. and. Uh, very much involved in historic preservation and as Louisiana um, has such a vulnerable, fragile um, environment here and culture, I have written a lot about preserving the the culture. Um, So I've written, I guess, 22 books, some more substantial than others, but uh, I also had written two crime books on true stories from Angola plantation, uh, which is now the Louisiana State Penitentiary, very very near here, and um, had been plantations, and they put them all together and and uh, started this eighteen thousand acre uh, penitentiary there. And behind every door there there was a very interesting story and a lesson to learn. And so the crime books that I wrote were were extremely interesting. Uh, As a crime writer, I had certainly never intended to be more than an objective observer, but when I became a victim, uh, it really was a golden opportunity for me.
1: Now tell us about your, to, to describe, I mean, it must be hard for you, but to a certain extent, tell us about the kind of character that you have been. You'd said before that you met Murray you had three previous marriages. So tell us about your marriages and and if you could, a little bit about your character.
2: Well, I went to college in Virginia and then I worked in Washington DC for a couple of years. And I went to the West Coast and worked writing for magazines out there and went to graduate school out there. So it's not as if I have stayed here continually and really it was very helpful to me to be away uh, because when you're in a small town it's it's easy to uh, succumb to the small-town mentality whereas when you come back from other areas you you realize that you're not missing anything anywhere else you can be satisfied with with the small-town life and and not intimidated by the small-town mentality Um, I started writing um, books when my children were small. My first husband was from Virginia, and we had a, a wonderful uh, footloose life right after college and did a lot of traveling and everything. And then when it was time to settle down, um, it was pretty well me who who assumed the responsibility of earning a living and taking care of children, and um, so that marriage ended in divorce, and then I married um, two more times, and um, was here, was here in St. Francisville from that point on. And my last husband was someone who to whom I was attracted by his intelligence and his access to um, stories that I really wanted to write about. Um, and so that was my fourth marriage and he had also been married before and so we were married for seven years i i would have to say that as as a wife i don't like to be told what to do and as a person i don't like to be told what to do and so i probably am not the ideal servant wife for sure but i am an independent um independent person. And and my fourth husband was someone who had been in corrections as his lifetime career and had to exercise absolute control over the, every situation. And that did not translate well into our marriage. I think that was the, the main issue there.
1: Well, let's go back here because we've got to talk about your business and your family. You have a daughter named Chase and a son. So tell us about their ages and let's go back in time in terms of before you met Murray. You alluded to what attracted you to Murray Henderson but let's talk about what the age difference was and what your particular familiar situation was in in terms of your uh, daughter and your son and then talk about how you met Murray Henderson.
2: Okay, well, my daughter, um, at the time of this book, my daughter was in college and was going to Emory for her senior year. Uh, my son was 12 years old uh, and lived in the house with me. And Murray, um, I knew him through the Episcopal Church, and we had, had been, you know, socially um, acquainted, but not close. And he was considerably older than I was, 24 years. Um, but he was, was very entertaining and um, very bright, as I said. And I had a great deal of respect for him as a, as a progressive corrections uh, administrator and also very attracted to him because of the access to um, criminal records and uh, stories like that Um, and so my son lived in the house with us when we married and my daughter uh, had gone off to to Emory in Atlanta.
1: Now this is we're talking about 1990 correct when you got married?
2: 1997 well 1990 we married 1997 is when the book takes
1: place. Right now tell us about Uh, Murray Henderson and again you talked about him being a real reformer in terms of Corrections and and that was part of the attraction you had to him as well so tell us about uh, before we go into the books that you've written about Angola tell us about Angola
2: well his career in Corrections started in Tennessee then he went to Iowa as the warden there Went back to Tennessee as the uh, warden of the Tennessee State Penitentiary, and then he came to Angola uh, at a time when the prison was was horrible. Uh, there were huge abuses. It was a very dangerous place for inmates as well as as corrections officers. Uh, it's very isolated. Um, and it's, it's purposely isolated. It's surrounded on three sides by the Mississippi River and then the other side by the Tunica Hills, which are almost impassable uh, to make it difficult for escapes to take place. Um, it's, it, it's so isolated that it was extremely difficult to attract um, competent employees there. There were certainly a number of good, dedicated employees, but there were also a number who um, had issues with control and violence, and uh, it was just a terrible, terrible place. The inmate, the inmate uh, guards were given guns to, to um, because there were very little staff there, and it just was rife with abuses. And um, inmates would sleep with Sears catalogs taped to their chests to, to ward off the knives in the night. Uh, they brought in um, some progressive. Uh, corrections administrators and Murray came in at that point as the warden and was very much resented by the entrenched um, hierarchy at Angola and so he had issues not only with with the inmates but with the uh, staff and tried very hard to implement some some good reforms that were very much needed also the government had to step in uh, and oversee a lot of the reforms there.
1: Now in his uh, tenure there was also the first correctional officer to, to be killed was in Angola wasn't it?
2: That's correct and that is a case that is still in the system today. Uh, one of the killers just this week has been ordered released after 40 years in isolation. It's a very interesting case that That involved not only Murray, but uh, actually involved me as well, because it was one of the cases that I had included in my book, Dying to Tell. And uh, when they threw out the indictment and had to re indict him, I was on the grand jury, I was called for the grand jury and kept asking that I be dismissed because I had written about it, but uh, they kept me on the grand jury, which of course was grounds for appeal, although it was denied. Uh, and it's still still going on today.
1: Now, you also include a story of, uh, I think it's an author of Peter Maas, uh, in, in uh, 1975 to 1980 in Tennessee, Influence-Peddling Scandal. So tell us a little bit about that and the uh, Marie, A True Story by Peter Maas.
2: Well, uh, Marie Rajani, who was, was um, there at the time, when Governor Blanton and a couple of other um, high officials were sent to prison for for influence peddling, and uh, Murray was the warden of the Penitentiary and then became Commissioner of Correction in Tennessee. Uh, he was never charged with anything, but at that point he left and came to Angola. Um, that was that was what uh, sent him out of Tennessee. Uh, I think he left a number of uh, high positions under a little cloud, um, shall we say, and um, Marie, I actually spoke with her, and she she did say that she did not think that he was guilty of any criminal activity, but just being one of the good old boys and not trying to make waves, uh, although there were certainly some criminal activity in the, in the corrections department.
1: Now, this is very important to this story, that he was heading a uh, a hospital or prison for the criminally insane with the and and so he was at the head of this forensic hospital so which would have him meet and establish relationships with psychologists and psychiatrists so tell us a little bit about this um, he was the head this of, uh,
2: they, they call it Feliciana forensic and he was the head of the, the facility where they would send um, Criminals who were um, having their their assessed, you know, for criminal trials, and um, so he knew all of the psychiatrists. He knew all the psychologists. He uh, was very familiar with how the insanity defense works, and this I think uh, really gave him some good ideas on how to commit the perfect crime.
1: Now, you talk about that in the course of the research for these two books, and and, and the idea for these two books was basically your idea, uh, and really you did the research and the writing, uh, but it also brought you together on the road in motel rooms, and your romance was sparked despite this 24, 25-year difference. Uh, tell us just a little bit about how... And because you were married and he was married as well, so tell us about how this romance developed and what you had to do as a result of this budding romance.
2: Well, I didn't uh, go into it with the idea of having any involvement with him other than professional, and I called him Mr. Henderson, and his ideas were very different, and he had been trying to uh, get involved with me for a number of years, which I did not even realize he would invite me to come to his retirement program and have designs to go out for lunch and all this. And I would show up with my husband, you know, and, and um, several instances like that. Um, after a while, you, you know, you get close to somebody and you have respect for their um, their opinions and their intelligence and Uh, It just developed, you know, just grew into uh, what what seemed to be a a nice situation. Um, He had been married for a number of years, um, but somewhat unhappily.
0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW, revoid we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
2: And I was looking for a little more than what I was having in my marriage, although I had a very good husband at the time. And so we both divorced and married in 1990 and were married for seven years. We did two books together, Starting in 1990, and um, had a, had a had a contentious relationship from the beginning.
1: Now, what might have cemented this somewhat is that he had said that he was very impressed with your writing, again as well, and and so very flattering for you as a writer. Also, and you said you were, you were enthralled with you know his marvelous mind, um, when you do meet, and with this 24-year-old difference in age, and just coming from a marriage where you have to divorce your husband and he has to divorce his wife, what was the response from your children and your family to Murray Henderson coming into your life?
2: Oh, I think they were all horrified. Uh, My daughter never did like him, um, could barely tolerate him, and got out of the house as soon as she could. Uh, My son was only 12 years old, you know, and and, um, Murray made an effort with him. Um, They went fishing once or twice, and then, of course, Murray's age, you know, his idea of spending quality time was to watch the McNeil-Lear report on TV, you know, and a 12-year-old is not going to be that impressed, but um, Stuart was a sweet little boy and he, you know, he tried to get along with him. Uh, My daughter never did care for him at all.
1: What was your relationship characterized by in terms of his disposition? What was his nature like, especially in the beginning?
2: He was very, um, very good to me i never heard him raise his voice i never saw any violence at all Uh, he had had a drinking problem while he was at angola but i never saw him take a drink Uh, he did not drink at all while we were were married Um, we had a a very cordial relationship but underneath the surface was always a struggle uh, for control always
1: Was he, did he exhibit some jealousy? You talk about your longtime carpenter and partner, uh, restorer of your plantation, the Butler Plantation. His name is Burnett, and you were friends Mm -hmm. with him and his wife. So was he jealous of that relationship that you had with Burnett?
2: He was jealous of every relationship I had, even with the cleaning staff. Um, He was very... Uh, demanding that he get all the attention and always be the center of everything. Uh, a wonderful writer, Abigail Padgett from San Diego, would come and stay here, and we would all go out to dinner. And she she's the one who wrote the introduction to the book. And she comments on how um, she and I would always talk all through dinner, and he would just sit there and uh, wait for the conversation to center around him, you know, and then he would participate but he just um he always needed to be the center of everything he he resented any time that I spent with anyone else and he resented any decision that I made uh, without talking to him and of course the business was mine and I didn't feel I needed to consult him on anything uh, although I would try to include him in things but uh, he always had to be the center of everything.
1: This might seem like I'm prying, but I think this is I know this is important to the story. What was you just mentioned that you didn't need him for the business now i'll I'll mention that you were forty six he was seventy. He was basically not retired, but you say he wasn't involved with your business so so tell us exactly what the relationship was often in terms of him moving in, but what was his role in terms of when you talked about expenses, when you talked about your money, his money, how did that work?
2: We had no community property at all. The business was on my inherited property, which was not community property. Uh, the money that went into it was mine either inherited or borrowed from the bank. Um, And he had very little role in the the property here. He had a a little part-time job that he did uh, with some health agency going around visiting doctors and things. We never had a joint bank account. We never had any community anything. Uh, All of our accounts were totally separate.
1: You also retained your name, Butler, um, and you said in the book that he resented that somewhat, didn't he?
2: Well, as a writer, you know, I never should have changed my name because I've had so many books published. Um, And so I did keep my last name and I I relate in the book one instance where I was giving a book review and he was introduced as Mr. Butler and he Uh got up and said, um, well, she has very graciously allowed me to keep my own name uh, but he really did not appreciate that at all.
1: No, no. Now, according to witnesses, again, written in your book, that the, your relationship was marred by separations, we'll say, for a few days, for several days, for different periods of time for various reasons. Uh, like you say, you didn't really have any major Uh, He wasn't a violent person by nature, but tell us how your relationship in that seven years was characterized in terms of these often separations.
2: Well, we just would feel the need to be apart, um, and he would leave, and then he would come back, and um, finally, the last time that he left, I was just delighted that he was gone and did not um, allow him to come back. But it was off and on for for years, um, mostly just the irritation of, of struggle over control.
1: And where would he go when he went, which is interesting, where would he go when he, when he were involved in these separations?
2: Well, his ex-wife very graciously allowed him to have a room in their house. And so he would go over there, and then he would come back. And why she allowed him to do that, I'll never know. But then why I allowed him to come back here, I'll never know either. Um, But the last time I did not.
1: Now, what's very, very interesting and again, important is Murray Henderson's son and his occupation. So tell us about Murray Henderson's son.
2: Um, He was an assistant district attorney at a nearby parish and um, actually, a very nice person. He would come here a lot and, and spend weekends with his second wife. And his he had a son, a little bit older than my son. And so um, he would come and spend summers and swim and play with Stuart. So uh, we had a, we had a, a good relationship.
1: Now, what would you in the seven years, and you say that this. You, Again, you mentioned the last separation, which was different. So tell us, before you tell us about the last separation and how it was particularly different, markedly different, tell us about what had led up to this. Say we'll talk about the last six months or the last year. How had the relationship changed and what was your reaction and what was his reaction in that, say, last year of the marriage?
2: I think, for one thing, it was because we did not have a writing project going. Um, And the other thing was that we just really got very tired of trying to live together and to get along together. Um, And it was not something that started off uh, slowly and escalated. It was something that just was zero to 100 uh, overnight. Um, and it started, it was something just really stupid. Uh, he would sit on our back porch and, um, somebody would have to walk past him to get to the, to the laundry room to do bed and breakfast laundry. And he had, he was very tall and he would stretch out his legs and you'd have to step over his legs to get to the laundry room. And, and so one of the cleaning ladies came in and and um he was looking at ties he was very very much of a fashion plate you know he's very well dressed all the time and had a million clothes and we had to build a whole new closet room to accommodate all of his clothes and so the the uh, one of the cleaning staff came in and he kept trying to show her this tie in a catalog and she sort of cursory looked at it and walked on by and then i came by to get to the laundry room and and he uh, tried to show me the tie and I said, Listen, I need some space here, you know, and that's what set it off. And the next thing he knew he was hauling out all of his clothes and um, that was when it really started.
1: It when did he stupid. What did he when did he utter the you'll be sorry you ever heard my name? Was it that at that time?
2: That was when he was, um, that was, that was the day of the, of the book starting.
1: Okay. That was the day of the event. Okay. So now with this, this heated argument and you said you needed some space that spurned him to start packing up the stuff. Tell us a little bit more about what this conversation led to in terms of him and your living situation.
2: Well, he was packing up his clothes. I was helping him pack his clothes. Um, I happened to open a box that I didn't know whether it was mine or his that was in a, an armoire, and there was a pistol in there, which I had never seen before. And I just put it back in the box and put it with his pile of stuff to go out to the, to the car, and uh, that was the first time I had seen a pistol, but it would not be the last time.
1: OK, we're going to before we talk about the actual day in question, we're going to use this as a pause just for to talk about our sponsor, Casper. Now, I have a neck injury, and so have I, I've had a tempur mattress and pillow for years. Now, it was time for a new bed, and I, so I was anxious to compare Casper to the industry standard for myself. Now, I received my Casper 12 days ago, delivered free right to my door, and my review is in. A fantastic mattress and a fantastic restful sleep. Casper has combined memory foam with a premium latex foam, contouring to your body with a cooling effect for incredible comfort. And because Casper has eliminated the showroom, the prices are, well, shocking. $500 $500 for a twin, only $950 for a king size. Lying on a mattress for a few minutes can't compare to Casper's 100-day risk-free trial. You have a hassle-free return policy if you're not satisfied for any reason. And right now, if you visit www.casper.com, promo code Murder you can get an additional $50 off your purchase. That's a 100-day free, risk-free trial delivered right to your door to experience Casper for yourself. And rest assured, Casper delivers the best sleep you've only ever dreamed of. That's www.casper.com slash truemurder. Now, when we last last left off and we were just going to be talking about the day in question. So after the heated conversation that you had and he packed up his stuff and you saw the little pistol that you didn't think too much of at that time. Tell us about the days leading up to the actual event in question.
2: Well, I didn't see him during the week, but um some friends saw him going out to dinner and uh, celebrating his 77th birthday. And he had gone to uh, the employment place of one of my cleaning uh, ladies and told her that he was so happy. And, um, but they said that he was very subdued at the celebration dinner. Um, I didn't really think anything about it. And then on a Sunday morning... Um, as I got up and went to church um, and was doing a little tour early that morning, uh, he came driving in, and I didn't see him, but the, the people that were here on the tour told me that he had driven in, and when he saw there were other other cars here, he left. Um, and then after they left, he came driving in again. He had it very carefully planned, because my daughter and son had left for Atlanta the day before, my son was driving up. Well, was riding up with my daughter to help her unpack for her last semester at Emory, and uh, then he was flying back um, the Sunday morning of all this happening. And I was to pick him up at the airport at at noon. Um, but normally on Sunday morning we were not open. I didn't do house tours until after lunch, and the cleaning staff came in late and so he thought that i would be completely alone in the house Uh, what he didn't know is that because i had this tour a couple of the cleaning staff had been dropped off so there were no cars out there but um he he didn't know that anybody was here but me and so when he appeared at the door after i had done the tour uh, i invited him in uh, rather stupidly and we sat on the back porch and um, had a little chat and, you know, very civil and low-key. And then the next thing I knew, he was standing over me with a gun. And so he, um, he was holding it out. You know, he's a very accomplished um, shooter, had, had taken FBI shooting classes and was a hunter in his earlier years. And so from 18 inches away... Um He proceeded to shoot me at least five times. I' never quite sure whether it was five or six because he had reloaded the the gun um, and very carefully um, aimed at my right arm, which i'm that's my dominant arm and uh, all through the the torso, he um, shot and and severed the intestines and uh, out part of the kidney and uh, just barely missed the the he missed the the spine because I sat up and I said stop what are you doing you know I have children to raise at which point he blew my right elbow to pieces and then the right shoulder Um, and so I was sitting there and I figured you know I would just do well to play dead because he reloaded the gun and so I sat there for about an hour bleeding profusely and um, this is how it gets sort of funny because one of my cleaning staff uh, came to the back door and I was sitting right in front of the back door on the back porch and she opened the door and this is how you get punished for speaking ill of somebody because she was, she's got a wonderful heart, but she doesn't quite make the connection between seeing something and doing something. And I had said a million times that if she went out to one of the cottages and there was a dead body on the floor, she would sleep around it and not even think anything about it. And so she came in the door and looked at me and went and started laundry and went back out. And later when the state police interviewed her Um, she said you know she says I never saw her uh, take a nap before and I wondered when she had changed from a yellow blouse to a red one and so that added quite a lot of time to when I had to sit there and then um, another, another member of the staff came in and saw what was going on and he was sitting there with his gun, and she said, well, she needs to get to the hospital right away, and he said, oh, no, she's gone. You go back out there. I won't hurt you, so she kind of backed away and went to the phone, an outside phone, and called, of all things, the third um, member of the cleaning staff who was older and more sensible who lived 20 miles away and was at home getting ready to go to church and so she instead of calling nine one one jumps in her truck and rushes down and when she comes in here she sees that his car is still here and so she goes over next door to where I have a, a cousin who's an attorney and uh finally finally you know the nine one one gets called and and um He's still sitting there watching me bleed to death. And I could see out of the back back glass in um, porch, I could see two little deputy sheriffs come creeping up the, the walkway. And one of them opened the door and grabbed me by the legs to try to pull me out. They thought I was dead. And he said when he touched my legs, there was just like marble. There was no blood in them at all. And when he did, I opened my eyes. And so... He, They knew that they had to go in and get him. And he was um, in the room right behind me and had his pistol in his pocket, but he was trying to pull it out and had his finger on the trigger. And these two old deputies, they had no bulletproof vest on at all. Um, One of them grabbed him through the the pocket uh, and held a cylinder of the pistol so that he couldn't shoot and they took him out. so, while I was sitting there, I, I just would say that I never struggled, I never thought, I ne- i don't think I could have moved uh, at all, the pain was just excruciating, but I never saw the least bit of blood, I never looked down, I never looked at my injuries, I just sat there, and they said that, the doctors said that it probably is what saved my life, because By being so still and trying not to let him see that I was even breathing, it it slowed down my metabolism enough, you know, that I didn't bleed completely out, but but pretty close to it. Um, So the deputy came back in once they had removed him from the scene and uh, as soon as he came in, I said, Randy, you've got to get somebody to go to the airport and pick up Stuart. And he said, oh, I can't believe you're still alive. You know, we, hold on, we've got an ambulance coming. So um, the ambulance came, and it was wonderful that I knew, I knew the two deputies. I knew the ambulance people. Um, the poor EMT who was in the ambulance started a couple of IVs and wrapped his belt around them so they would – would, would um, go fast and when we got in the ambulance um, he, he thought I was not going to make it to the hospital and they were telling my family to start funeral arrangements and make arrangements for my children and in the ambulance as we're going hundred miles an hour to the hospital that's like 20 miles away I'm telling this EMT this is going to make such a wonderful story and I know how I'm going to write this book and I had it all outlined completely in my head. Uh, of course, I forgot it all, you know, in six weeks in the hospital under morphine. But um, I I knew at that time, as a writer, I was going to make a book out of it and, um, and it was going to be good.
1: Absolutely. Now, what's interesting, too, is... What was when, when you talked about the last conversation that precipitated this incident, this attempted murder, is that you talked about space that you said, I I need some space. What was the quote that he gave you? And, and you also talked about Stuart and and being very, very concerned about who would pick Stuart up at the airport. And so there was talk that that the one thing that Murray did do was make a call. For someone yes. to pick up Stewart. So yes. tell us about the actual quote that he does say to you, which is just fantastic about the space. The only
2: thing he said to me as he started shooting was, "Space, have this for space. Space, you wanted space, have this for space." And then uh, after the shooting, I asked him to make sure that Stewart would not come into the airport alone, and he did go out and telephone. And arrange for someone to pick up Stewart at the airport. Um, now he was he was he had promised to pay them twenty five dollars, and when the deputies took him out of the house, he had twenty five dollars loose in his pocket. And my horror was, you know, if he was going to be there when Stewart arrived and he paid off this person who picked up Stewart, what was he going to do with Stewart? Uh, I'd like to think he wouldn't have harmed him, but um, I don't know.
1: One of the most fascinating aspects of this is that you are so cognizant of what's going on or your surroundings during this ordeal, Um, and you talk about you hearing something that in your mind, because you got your eyes closed and you can't see, is that you think it's him pouring out gasoline to light the entire plantation on fire and you with it, but instead it's a a, a glugging glug glug sound that you hear. What is it that you do do here?
2: Well, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't completely conscious all the time, but I was conscious most of the time and very much aware of what he was doing and what was going on. And behind me in the dining room, I could hear glug glug glug. And I, I really thought, that he was pouring gasoline on the floor and would burn down the house because he never really fit here and never really liked it. Um, However, what he was doing was pouring a fifth of vermouth down his throat so that when they arrested him, he would be legally drunk. Uh, He had not had any of it when he arrived and when he did the shooting. Um, So it was just one more uh, defense Um, strategy that that he was was applying he had gone and bought the vermouth that morning after he had been target shooting down at the mississippi river with the pistol uh, and people saw him there and then he went to um, a little inn in town that's run by some of my friends and bought the vermouth there and he made sure that they knew that he was there and was buying it. Uh, if he'd just gone to the grocery store to buy it, nobody would have noticed. And so he wouldn't have had the witness to, to his purchase of the, of the liquor at that point. So uh, it was all, all pretty well planned. Uh, he thought that he had the perfect crime.
1: Now he is arrested immediately. And of course, he's got connections with law enforcement uh, for all the years he's been involved in corrections. But typically, with a case like this, there would be a bail and he would be held without bond, usually. So tell us what happens in this case.
2: Well, as I go to the hospital um, in critical condition and will be there for six weeks, he goes to jail and is out in 24 hours. Um, his best friend was the mayor, who was best friends with the judge. Um, the sheriff was not his friend and uh, really did not want to let him out, but he had to. And so 24 hours, he's out with his guns, with his car. Uh, I'm in the hospital in, in uh, intensive care for a couple of weeks. And then in the hospital for, for quite a while, went in in August and came out in the middle of the fall. And they were terrified that he would come back to the hospital. So every nurse's station had his photograph and they had me under an assumed name. Um, I couldn't go out anywhere in the hallway during visiting hours and they would take me down the service elevators to go to To uh, therapy, Um, and and it was very disorienting. The nurses would come in, "Oh, how are you, Mrs. Jones?" And I'm I'm thinking, "I'm not Mrs. Jones, I don't think, you know." But I was taking so much pain medicine and uh, just really sort of out of it for quite a while. The the day that I went in, they were able to do some of the stomach surgery, but. They had to just pack my arm in ice for about a week before um, they could deal with that. And so uh, it was, it was um, you know, I had a lot of morphine uh, over the, those couple of weeks and, and really was not that much aware of what was going on. But it was very scary to know that um, not only was he out there, but that since he had been the head of uh, forensic and Angola, that a number of the medical personnel might have worked for him or might be working with him, you know, and so uh, I got a little paranoid there for a while.
1: What you do talk about, too, is that the he's charged for second-degree murder and he has some conditions to not to go into your parish, but despite that, he is contacting uh, Big Rose and he's asking questions about who's questions that could be perceived as uh, very much like someone's monitoring you and stalking you in terms of who's home, who's there, who's not there, and just adding to your paranoia. So tell us about this effort and what happens as a result of his, I guess, cockiness.
2: Well, when I was finally released from the hospital, um, I had a had a colostomy. I had to have help because i had an arm in a cast and stitches and staples everywhere i ended up having eight separate really major surgeries uh, so it went on for about two years but when i was finally released from the hospital he he had a, a restraining order not to contact me or my children or my staff um and so as they mounted their defense they would um stake out the place and follow the cleaning staff home and um, try to uh, send people, you know, when you're open to the public for, for uh, overnight accommodations, you can't interrogate people as to what their motives are, you know, so they actually would send um, investigators pretending to be guests who would take photographs and um, he would contact some of my staff to find out, you know, ostensibly how I was, but he would be asking, does anybody stay with her at night? Is there a guard on the ground? You know, uh, very worrisome questions. And, uh, finally he started calling me and they had made me get caller ID on the phone. And so it was pretty obvious. And at one point he actually spoke and said, uh, Oh I'm sorry I have the wrong number you know and at that point um, the defense the the prosecutor for the state decided it was time for him to go to jail um, and that that was so interesting because every every legal person in this area recused himself you know the the district attorney um, said that he had had connections with him so he couldn't Get involved in the case and got kind of bumped around and finally ended up uh, in another parish down on the on the Louisiana coast, um, and so that was like a two-hour drive for the assistant district attorney to come up here. And I only saw him once or twice before the trial, and um, my heart really sank when I saw him because he was this tiny little fellow and just. He had freckles and little blonde hair and he looked like he had on his father's suit and he was very soft-spoken and, you know, I just really worried. But it turned out that he had, um, he had trained with Harry Connick in New Orleans for 10 years and he just tore them up in court. But, but anyway, um, he decided that we really needed to get him put in jail he had not wanted me to go to any of the hearings before that because he did not want the defense to see what kind of a witness I would make, you know, and how I probably would not be too easily intimidated on the stand. And so uh, he he decided it, you know, this was it, and I would just have to go and testify. And so uh, we did go. Um, and there was a judge who had let him out twenty four hours after after the crime, and so I really didn't think we were gonna get anywhere. Um, and, and they made up some cock and bull story about how, well, he was just trying to order books, you know, you don't order books from an author, you order them from the publisher, and, you know, just a really stupid thing. And he and, um, sat up in the chair and he said, he says, you know, whatever you say when you call there, even if you say that you're sorry, you have the wrong number, what you're really saying is I'm out here and I'm going to get you again. He says, you're going to jail, which was a big shock uh, to everybody, including me. Um, And so he did get incarcerated until the trial, uh, which the the crime happened in August of 97 and the trial was in late fall of of 98.
1: In the interim what is the strategy for he and his defense in terms of defense?
2: Well, you know, it was just a typical domestic violence defense. Um, and you see it in the paper every day. It's it's um, it's really shameful um, how we have lost our communication skills to the extent that we have to resort to violence, but... Um, He would say, you know, when the police come in a domestic violence case, usually the perpetrator is still there or easily found and probably proud of what he's done. And he's standing there with his gun or his knife or his baseball bat. And so he can't say he didn't do it. So the defense becomes he did it, but it's her fault or he did it, but he's crazy. And they tried both of those in in my case. Uh, they tried to blame it on me. They tried to blame it on insanity. And um, neither one of them went over it really well. But it, it was a typical, typical um, domestic violence defense.
1: He had a really good lawyer. Of course, you pay for that really good lawyer. He had a good lawyer. And what it was is he pled in, in, insanity. And what the insanity was, he tried to explain through psychiatric expert witnesses that you had said something to the effect of called him a, we won't go into it because I know you're sensitive to this, but the MF word. So the MF phrase that we all know of, uh, which, you know, you claimed later to never have said to him, but his lawyers claimed that your utterance of this word was the trigger that taken this normally his whole life uncharacteristically or characteristically nonviolent, and there was a trigger. So explain a little bit more about what he tried to explain to the jury.
2: Well, first of all, he had three defense attorneys, uh, extremely well paid. He had a jury consultant, uh, who has that but O.J. Simpson, you know.
1: Right, uh, right, So
2: his defense was, was uh, very, very costly. Um, and part of it was that they, they were claiming that he was having a dissociative um, disorder. Uh, right. Dissociative um, disorder is something that, it's a legitimate psychiatric defense. Uh, you see it in child abuse cases or in war atrocities, you know, where your mind right. just does not, uh, just blanks it out. And you don't remember it, and you you're not even sure that it's ever happened. Um, well, for one thing, you know the the um, state the the court had hired some sanity, um, sanity had a had a sanity hearing, and and both the psychiatrist and the psychologist who examined him for the court, non biased and not for the defense or the prosecution. Uh, found him legally sane and able to assist in his defense and knowing right from wrong uh, at the time of the crime. Um, the dissociative disorder, it, you could walk in front of a car and not know it, you'd run into a wall. Um, the, uh, the, his defense uh, psychiatrist and psychologist both were saying that that's what he was having and that it was precipitated by my calling him an MF. Well, I never used that word toward him at all. Um, plus, the the prosecutor would um, pretty well blow that out of the water when he would ask these professionals, um, now, you know, do you have a dissociative response to abuse? Yes. Do you have a dissociative response to uh, wartime horrors? Yes. Do you have a dissociative response to... a being called a bad name well maybe not you know um so that that didn't really go over very well Um, the prosecutor just really uh, made them look like fools Um, the other thing they did in the defense was to make it my fault and um, they said that i had spent all this money which was a lie and i had my bookkeeper there Um, the bed and breakfast bookkeeper who was was ready to testify to that fact that it was my money and I was essentially supporting him, um, said that I had been running around. That was not true. I had uh, people there ready to testify to that. But the prosecutor decided that all these tangential um, things were not, they were going to, to really distract the jury from from um, the main issue and so he didn't want to bring those up and so we didn't but what happened was and this is this is typical of domestic violence you get victimized once in the in the crime and then you get victimized in court where they try to make it your fault and then you get victimized the third time when the media picks it up and reports it um you know so it's very aggravating to sit through
1: Really, when it comes down, despite I know it seems like re victimization, and it certainly is. And I was involved myself in in a trial, so I know how harmful some of these things can be said, especially when you expect very much like watching a law and order episode where the district attorney will stand up and object to some of these things. Whereas in actuality, some of these things are let go because, like you say, it can confuse the jury, let the defense lawyer say the lies that he's going to say, the ball face lies that he is going to say, because the jury has heard the essential elements. They've uh, heard your testimony and everyone else's. So, so despite that, what I think he zeroed in very, very masterfully was, is that if it was a dissociative state, then he wouldn't have said to your cleaning person that listen, uh, no, she doesn't need to go to the hospital. She's already gone. And
2: he wouldn't have just, been able to reload the gun. He wouldn't have been able to turn his car around. He wouldn't have been able to do all, you know, to plan ahead. You know, to do the target shooting and the buying of the liquor. You know, it was just just really uh, terrible. But um, I I'm just wanting to say that. I'm so fortunate that my scars are more physical than mental. And I think writing the book was what really helped me the most. Not only was it good physical therapy, uh, doing the typing and trying to get my hand functional again, um, but it was tremendously therapeutic mentally. Um, I knew that I would be able to get my story out there I hoped that it would have some social relevance and would reach people, and it does. It, it's still selling 18 years later, uh, and I get letters and phone calls all the time from people saying, You know, you have helped me to understand. You, you've been so honest in your writing, and um, you're not telling just your story, you're telling our stories. So it gives a voice to what had essentially been a silent crime before. Um, the women who were victimized were either too afraid to scout or they were too inarticulate to speak out or they had no, no medium to, to uh, give them a, a, sp- a place to speak out. So uh, I, I really feel good about giving a voice to, to all of those people. And then, you know, I would just have to say, if you're going to shoot somebody, don't shoot a writer because they are going to get the last word.
1: (laughs) You know, it's incredible too, that we really didn't have enough time to go to really touch on some of the more heartfelt elements of this, where your friends and your family and supporters that well-wishers from people you'd never met before all this support from the people that you knew as your friends and, and, and new friends that arose out of this tragedy, the therapist, everybody was involved. And we don't even mention how stressful this was to have, you know, the specter of maybe Murray coming and and finishing the job, but also of the incredible burden of trying to run this business, sustain this business while you're injured, trying to rehab from these incredible injuries and also the financial burden of this. So, Again, this is a, a, a we talked about in the introduction. This is a talk a tale of survival, and for a true crime book, it is very, you know, it's, it's a happy ending, if there is such a thing in true crime books. So,
2: yes, it is, and it's a real tribute to a small town because uh, there were times when I was sixteen thousand dollars overdrawn, and in a big city, they'd have been hauling off the furniture, and the bankers here just said. Keep writing the checks. We know you'll catch up. Um, So the the whole town pretty well turned out and supported me and, um, and helped in my recovery.
1: We also, I want to ask what Murray Henderson received in court at the trial in terms of, of the uh, sentence. And then to talk about, again, we just mentioned about survival, but, but forgiveness. So, Unbelievably, you spoke with Murray Henderson after this whole ordeal, after the sentencing. So tell us what he did receive and tell us a little bit about how on earth you could have spoke to him and what did you say?
2: Well, he got a sentence of 50 years, uh, which was amazing because it was the same judge. Uh, and he was sent to one of the penitentiaries. Um, in North Louisiana, which was about as far as they could get him from here. And so he spent his time playing the stock market and reading books and um, started writing me and calling me. And uh, I did go to see him one time when I was trying to get divorced from him, and he was trying to claim part of my business here and would not settle the community uh, of which there was none. And um, I really wanted to see what he had to say to me, uh, which was just a bunch of bull. Um, I also wanted to see the evidence that I had not seen in court. I was sequestered at the time that they were presenting the real physical evidence. And so I wanted to see the clothes and the gun and everything. And, and everybody kept telling me, no, no, you don't want to see that. And and I uh, I did uh, because the way that I cope with things is to deal with them and move on. And so I went to the courthouse here and they were all in a cardboard box and all these bloody clothes and everything. I wanted to see what, what he was looking at, um, you know, when he was shooting me. And by looking at the clothes, I got a pretty good idea, you know, of how they were all covered in blood and soaked with blood clots and everything. Um, and I had a conversation with the EMT who had been in the, in the ambulance with me. And he said, he said, don't look at this as a crime of passion. He said, this is a crime of hate. You know, and I, I really came to the understanding that he was, a very mean person underneath all that control. It was very tightly controlled, but he had a real mean streak, and that I bore the brunt of that. Um, but what else do I need to say here? Um,
1: what was he, his official? What was his official? Sorry. What was his official reasoning? Did he ever say, "Listen"?
2: This is why I did this.
1: Tell us, what was his official
2: reason? He had no reason. He could not tell. He took no responsibility for it. He didn't feel sorry for anything other than the impact on his life. Uh, He felt very sorry for himself. He never felt sorry for me or anybody that was going through uh, the trauma with me. And people would ask me uh, what about forgiveness? Have you forgiven him? Do you do? Don't you see that you have to forgive him? Well, yes and no. Um, and what I did was not necessarily loving forgiveness, but more in not allowing him to have any control over my emotions anymore, and just totally. Uh, erased him from my life, and um, and you know if I had remained bitter or angry uh, or hating, uh, he would have still been in control. And so I was not willing to allow that, and uh, just moved on.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting that when you talk about not taking responsibility right to the end, he claims to not remember. But, of course, he wouldn't have done anything because he loved you so much. But, again, not taking responsibility whatsoever.
2: Now, he did try to get out of prison. Um, and he applied for a pardon and went before the pardon board. And, again, it was all just a big setup deal. He had so many connections in the corrections of administration and... I really was not going to even attend the, the pardon hearing, but um, the head of the pardon board called me and said, you really need to be there, you, you've got to go. My children wanted to go, I did not want them to, I did not want them exploited during the trial and I did not allow them to, to have anything much to say other than my daughter uh, right at the end of the trial um, did talk about how she had, not seen any deterioration in him and know that she just didn't like him. But um, when, when we went to the pardon board hearing, I asked to be the only one who would speak um, and asked to speak last. And so they presented his, his um, wanting to get out. And he had several witnesses on how wonderful he was and what a marvelous career he had had and, uh, what a nice old man he was, and um, that the sheriff did not not object to his coming back to the St. Francisville area. And I just happened to have seen the chief deputy um, from from this area. We had we had gone to a pardon hearing out of the parish somewhere else, and I just happened to see the the chief deputy from this parish standing there. And and I asked him what he was doing here, and he said, "Well, the sheriff sent." me to make sure that they understood that what he wants is what you want and so um i was able to get him to get up and say say what the sheriff actually said rather than supporting his release he did not want him released and um they denied his his pardon and then he he died in jail um oh i actually died in a nursing home or hospital and um so that was the end of that and he served maybe five years altogether. Right.
1: What was it like hearing about his passing?
2: A radio station called me and asked if I would like to make a comment. And I said, I certainly would not. You need to get a comment from his family that would might be positive, And I have nothing to say about it. Um, I-, I felt sorry that he had died. Um, but then I, you know, felt much greatly relieved and my children would finally be able to sleep through the night. My little daughter, her bedroom was right above mine on the second floor. And I would hear her feet hit the floor every night when a car backfired or somebody shot at a mailbox or something. My little son who was 12 years old at the time um, had, had real issues, anger issues. He really would have, would have liked to shooting uh, and would come down and get into bed with me at night to protect me. Uh, you know, and it just was really sad. I was in the hospital for two years during which time he went from a child to a teenager. And, and I feel like I really missed the important years of his, his transition there and was not there to help him. But, um, They they both are good now, and and she's married and lived in Mississippi and would never live here again. Uh, It just totally ruins it for her. Uh, My son is married and has two little children and um, lives right here on the place with me.
1: And how is the business presently today, Ann?
2: Oh, it's great. Uh, For a while, it was was pretty hard to get it started again because – you know, who wants to go spend the night in some place where there's been a very violent attempted at murder? Uh, we had to have security on the grounds at night. and uh, But we've got some very loyal customers who have been staying with us for 20, 25 years now, and they um, love the peace and quiet that we offer. And so uh, the bed and breakfast does very well.
1: It's and an amazing I- story. Go ahead. I
2: continue to write. I continue to write and have done some wonderful books. Uh, I feel like I have been given 18 years as a real blessing that I almost did not have and have seen my children grow up and my son have children and uh, make lives for themselves. And I have also written some, some pretty good books in uh, that ensuing time that I wouldn't have had a chance to write at all. So uh, I really feel very fortunate.
1: Yes. Tell us about the titles that you have, the, the nonfiction true crime titles, we'll say, that you have written, and also the fictional books, or the other books that you have written as well, nonfiction or, pardon me, fiction titles, fictional
2: titles. Mostly I write nonfiction and uh, I'll tell you that Weep for the Living, the title came from a little cemetery right up the road from my house where Jefferson Davis' his first wife actually is buried. It's the Locust Grove Cemetery, and there's a little baby that was buried there. Uh, she was buried in the 1830s at just one year old. And her epitaph says, Stranger, if ere these lines be read, weep for the living, not the dead. You know, and that's such an apt quotation uh, and and good for this book. Um, Week for the Living is a Pelican publishing book. It has sold extremely well the whole time uh, since I wrote it. And I have five, six other Pelican books, um, mostly on regional preservation and uh, history. I write about uh, my two crime books were published by University of Lafayette Press, at Louis- University of Louisiana at Lafayette Press. And one is called Angola, um, Louisiana State Penitentiary, and the other is called Dying to Tell, which is mostly death penalty cases. Uh, very, very interesting stories um, from Angola. Um, because as I said before, behind every door there, there's a very, very uh, interesting story as well as a lesson that if we don't learn, um, keeps repeating itself. So um, they're, they're very interesting, true crime books. Um, and I've had some other little humor books and children's books and travel books and swamp tour books and um, books on, on uh, Louisiana history mostly.
1: Now, tell us for those people that would, might want to contact you about the bed and breakfast and the plantation and, 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 and also to maybe find out about your books. Do you have a website or do you, are you interested in Facebook friends? Tell us how people might contact you and where, if you have a website, where they might go for more information. Okay,
2: it's www.butlergreenwood.com a very comprehensive website on the history of the place and the Bed and Breakfast. There's also a list of all my books on there. Um, They can be ordered through the publisher, Pelican uh, Publishing in New Orleans or UL Press in in Lafayette, Louisiana, or on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any of the bookseller sites. Um, And then I also have a Facebook presence uh, actually, I have three different sites, Ann Butler and Ann Butler Author and Butler Greenwood Plantation B&B. And so um, welcome anybody to get in touch with me and to, to um, get a copy of the book if they're interested. I think, I think that it's a book that has some social relevance and um, hopefully it helps people. I have done a lot of speaking on domestic violence, I've spoken to um, sheriffs in training and to first responder training and uh, victims' rights organizations, as well as uh, such such opposite places as the New York State Supreme Court and then um, anger management in prisons, uh, anger management graduating classes where you've got 500 faces looking at you who've seen worse and done worse and heard worse. And you're not going to impress them by getting up there and crying, but I can get up there and compare how many times we've been shot. And uh, that kind of gets their attention. And um, so maybe they listen to me a little bit more than some pathetic victim who, who is really a victim. I don't see myself as a victim. I see myself as a survivor. And um, hopefully A lot of other
1: other women do too. Yeah, it's an incredible journey that you have to to get this man convicted. It looks like for a time that he might skate from justice uh, based on his connections and his reputation and certainly uh, it didn't look good for you with with your recovery and looming bills and so it's a fascinating story about how the tables were turned and finally justice was served and also how you survived all this with the help of family and friends and just people around the world that have been well-wishers since you've gone through this ordeal and written this fine book, Weep for the Living. So I want to thank you very much, and Butler, for coming on and talking about Weep for the Living. I want uh, to thank you very much, and you have a great evening.
2: Thanks, Dan. It's been nice to talk to you.
1: Thank you. Good night.
2: Good night.